Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Romans chapter 13, Paul said this, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And as we'll see shortly, Jesus said, watch and pray, in Matthew 26 verse 41. And we'll just have time to look at two reasons why we need to wake up and pray. The first reason that God calls us to prayer and to wake up and to pray is that prayer is required for empowerment to ministry. The disciples failed, and there was a story in the three disciples, James, uh, Peter, James, and John, that came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And when they came down, um, a man with a boy who had been possessed by a demon met them and he said, I met with your disciples because my, my son has a demon that's been throwing him in the fire and in the water, and your disciples, evidently the other nine, couldn't cast him out. Please help my son. Deliver him from this demon and heal him from what he has been suffering because he's been suffering terribly. There's an interesting reaction that takes uh, place next. Before casting out the demon and healing the boy, Jesus did something else first. He first rebuked the disciples. He said, O unbelieving perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And then he healed the boy. Think about this for a minute. If you're a pastor and you had a staff member or a board member or a volunteer leader, or if you're a, or let's say you're a cell leader and somebody underneath you or in your ministry tried to do something in ministry and they couldn't do it, I want to ask you honestly, would you rebuke them? The answer is no, I wouldn't either. I would pat them on the back. I would say, good job for trying, now let me show you how to do it. Jesus didn't do it. And that should alert us to something. Because Jesus uh, was uh, also is very, very encouraging. So why isn't he encouraging here? Why is he rebuking? And uh, that, that is the question that comes up now. When they were in private, the disciples asked him, so why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Now, no, just, just look at what he's saying. Because you have so, how much faith? Little faith. Now, okay, so let's read on. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, does that sound like much faith or little faith? Little faith. So he says, because you have little faith, that's why you couldn't drive it out. And now he says, but if you have little faith, you can say to this mountain, move from here to here, and it would, uh, from here to there, and it would be moved. Nothing will be impossible. Does this, sound, does this sound a little like a contradiction to you? It sure does to me. So let's look at this contradiction, because here's what it's saying. Because of little faith, they couldn't drive out the demon. And if they had little faith, they could drive out the demon. So which one is it? I think Jesus is alerting us to something here. 
What was Jesus getting at? Well, let's, uh, through a process of elimination, let's get rid of some ideas because I've heard all kinds of erroneous ideas about what Jesus is saying here, but we're going to find out we can eliminate four of them right off the bat, and we're going to be left with one. The first thing that we know he wasn't saying was that it wasn't God's will. It wasn't God's will because Jesus was upset. It must have been God's will. True? Besides, I think Jesus is in the setting people free business, wouldn't you say? Church, you can, you can, you can preach back to me here. That's okay. You can make noise. That's okay. Uh, exactly. Second, the problem wasn't that they didn't step out in faith. They actually stepped out in faith. Sometimes people say, well, if you just stepped out in faith. They, they did step out in faith. They tried to remove the demon, cast him out. The problem wasn't that they didn't try. The problem is that it didn't work. So that eliminates that idea. Here's the third one. The problem wasn't that the quantity of their faith was too little. We can see that they fully expected that the demon uh, would leave. The disciples had often driven out demons before. Mark chapter 9, I don't have it on the PowerPoint, but I'll, so I'll just read it to you. Mark 6.13 says, They, the disciples, drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So they had plenty of faith. They had full expectations that this was going to work. In fact, they were surprised that it didn't work. That's why they said, Lord, why didn't it work? We fully expected it. I mean, they were excited. Even the 72 knew how to drive out demons and came back with great joy and said, even the spirits submit to us in, a, in your name, according to Luke chapter 10, 17. Well, then there's a fourth one. They hadn't ignored a step in some formula to exercise demons, had they? Well, Mark 9 has more commentary, has another piece of commentary on this exact same story. And in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 29, it says, this kind can come out only by prayer. Some texts even have uh, fasting, but that doesn't matter whether they have it or not. It won't, um, doesn't affect what we're talking about here at all. This kind can come out only by prayer. Now, did Jesus mean that when the Father brought his boy to the disciples, if they had first had just stopped to pray first, and for the texts that have fasted, fasted, then the question would be, how many hours do you fast while you're standing in front of the boy? Or do you just do fast for a minute? Or how does that work? And the reason I'm saying that is, do you see how ridiculous the whole idea is? What if they had just right there on the spot, then they, they would have been able to exercise the demon? And of course we say, of course not. Uh, if that had really been part of the formula, surely, I mean, there was nine of them, presumably there was nine of them trying to exercise this demon, surely one of them would have said, hey, fellas, I know why it's not going out. We missed step three. We're on step five, but we missed step three. Oh, what's step three again? Uh, prayer. Oh, shoot, yes, of course. We missed prayer. Let's go and over, let's redo the formula. You see the problem? Uh, not, uh, not only that, but if we see what Jesus did, it couldn't have been that because Jesus didn't do that. He just takes the boy and rebukes the demon, and the demon's gone. And then he heals the boy. No prayer step in there at all. 
So when he's saying that about prayer, he is saying something else. It's not about the formula. There's something else he's getting at. So this leaves us, as far as I can tell, only one other option. It was the quality of their faith. Now, I want to illustrate how this works, because as you saw, it looks like a contradiction if you only had little faith, you know. Uh, let's try it with something we might say. Have you ever heard a phrase to the effect of, he's not much of a man? Has, has anybody heard that kind of thing? Okay, three of you have. Now you've heard, now all of you have heard it, actually. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, see, you've all heard it. Now, if it was, you know, it's football season. If that's being said in the context of football, when you say he's not much of a man, it may be referring to, let's say a commentator said that, he might, uh, he might be referring to the quantity of pounds and inches of that man. You, you see what I'm saying? If you're talking about relationships, it may be referring to the quality of the individual. He's not much of a man. Could be two women discussing and saying, he's not much of a man, even though he's 10 foot tall. He's not much of a man because of the way he treats women. Do you see what I'm saying? Now we're talking about quality. And in faith, when people are talking about faith, all, they, we always seem to think we're talking about quantity. I just demonstrated it can't be talking about quantity. And that's why it sounds like we have a contradiction here. He is saying one of those phrases is referring to quantity, and the other one is referring to quality of faith. Okay? So... Jesus was saying that they didn't need much quantity of faith, just a little of the right kind or quality of faith, like a mustard seed. So it didn't need much like a mustard seed, but it had to have the quality of a mustard seed to be able to be effective. Obviously, theirs wasn't. It was defective. So then, what is the right kind of quality of faith? What does this mean and the comment of Jesus in Mark 9, which we just looked at, this kind comes only by prayer, helps us get to the answer. What did Jesus mean when he said this kind comes out only by prayer? Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we're going to look at in the next point, when Jesus prayed, what did the disciples do? They slept. But evidently, that wasn't the first time they were sleeping when he was praying. Let's go to Mark chapter 1, and Mark has an interesting story. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 38, and this is what it says. It says, very early in the morning, when it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house, went out to a solitary place to pray. That's verse 35. 36 says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. When they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can uh, preach there also, for that is why I've come. That's verses 35 to 38. Now, you know what's interesting about that story? We see that Jesus is in a house, and they, the disciples are presumably there. They're on itinerant ministry together. But Mark comments on something. He says Jesus got up early in the morning and went out to pray 
And presumably, the disciples are, are sleeping in. Do you see a pattern here? Jesus prays, the disciples sleep. That's what's going on. Why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Though they had faith, their faith was a deficient one because it had, and now I want you to listen really carefully to what I'm going to say. Here is what was deficient about that faith and why it didn't work. Why it wasn't like the faith of, or like the seed of a must, uh, uh, like a mustard seed. It was uh, like a seed of something else. Their faith had sh subtly shifted and they didn't even know it. Their faith no longer was in God's ability, which would have been demonstrated by prayer. Their faith had shifted subtly to dependence in their own self-sufficiency, which is why they didn't need prayer. Do you see that? That's the problem. It was deficient, defective faith, and that's what upset Jesus. They had, they, had, uh, the, you know, they had the gift of casting out demons. They had techniques down. They knew the formula and the steps. They had the expertise and experience. I mean, how hard can this be? We know what we're doing. They came to believe that the ability to minister was inherent in them. They would never have said it, but their lack of prayer betrayed the truth that they no longer depended on God, but on themselves. And that's what upset Jesus so much. Christianity 101, dependence on God in prayer. Lesson number one. And they completely missed it. Sounds like a lot of Christians. Parents, for example. Yeah, here's, a, here's a way this can work. As many of, you, many of us are parents, right? <laughs> I've got enough money to keep my children out of harm's way by putting them in sports and traveling with me on vacations, maybe around the world, doing all kinds of things with me. And as long as I do things and keep them out of trouble like that and do stuff and have a relationship and we're good friends, it's going to work. Or... I'll just send them to a Christian school. That's going to do it. Or I'll take some parenting course, or three, or, and I'll read a dozen parenting books. You say, oh, now you're telling us to throw that all out. Well, Southland tells us we should be doing it. No, I'm not telling you to throw that out. But what I'm saying is, if you think that that's what's going to save you against the war uh, of the enemy against your kids, you've got to be kidding yourself. That sufficiency in yourself and in your own abilities and your own techniques, not in prayer. There's a war going on out there. Let's try it with pastors. See, then we, we, we say, I know what I'm doing. I'll just skimp on prayer. Pastors can do the same thing. I've preached a thousand messages. How hard can this be? I've led the board and the staff and the church and direction and vision for 10 years. I'm good at it. I know what I'm doing. How hard can this be? I've discipled and set many people free. How hard can this be? I mean, so had the disciples. And they couldn't do it. Now listen carefully. Then the devourer, 
The enemy, a real enemy, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy your souls, your lives, your children, and your churches, comes against you, and you rise to take him out on, and like Samson, you don't realize that the Spirit of the Lord has left you. You say, oh, that's Old Testament. No. You can be full of the Holy Spirit, and you can be not full of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not full of the Holy Spirit you're not going to be able to take on the enemy. And he wars against your souls every single day. You do those other things, but now you add to it prayer. Because the empowerment comes there. And as we're going to see, there's other things that come out of it there as well. You're not filled with spirit because you haven't been connected to the vine through prayer. We have no inherent power with which to fight the enemy, none. You can't fight Satan with sticks and stones um, and programs and training and experience, and you can't bear fruit apart from him. Jesus clearly teaches that. John 15, 4, you know the passage. Abide in me and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must, uh, 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 it must remain in the branch or in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. How do we abide in him? The chief way we abide in him is through prayer. That is what Jesus was getting at, and that is why he was so upset. Self-sufficiency is the death knell of the Christian and of the church. When we spend time in prayer, we're filled with the Holy Spirit so that when we leave our times of prayer, we take God along with us into our personal and ministry lives. And when he goes with us, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. Andrew Murray said, when I work, I work. When I pray, God works. The second reason that prayer is absolutely essential, absolutely essential, and why we need to wake up and pray is because prayer is necessary to withstand temptation. Now we're going to go to the account in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're going to see two contrasting storylines in the entire story. The first one that we're going to begin with is Peter, and then we'll look at Jesus. Before the cross, Jesus warned Peter that he would face a big temptation. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, and I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In fact, I mean, that's amazing. Jesus tells, warns Peter before the fact that he is going to face a temptation. And then he turns around, and he actually gives him the specifics of the temptation, which is remarkable. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, I want you to see Peter's, remember we were talking about self-sufficiency, overconfidence in our ability to handle the spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes. 
Peter is self-confident in the face of such a warning. Listen to what he says to Jesus. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Huh. A little later, Jesus again warned Peter and the disciples, this time explicitly telling them that they were not sufficient to withstand the temptation coming in their own strength, even with good intentions and motives. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into what? Because the spirit is willing and the flesh, however, is weak. So he warns them. He says, the, 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 you, you might have good intentions. You might have good motives. But I'm telling you that even though you have good intentions and good motives and you intend to do the right thing, you won't be able to withstand what's coming unless you watch and pray. Won't be able to do it. The, the word watch here means to remain awake or alert or if asleep, wake up. Church, this is a warning that your good intentions and mine are not enough to face Satan's temptations and the trials ahead. And Jesus advises us how to avoid failure in temptation, and it's through what? Prayer. One more time. Through what? Prayer. Prayer. Now, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to say something. I, I, I'm, I'm being very direct here with you. Jesus would say... Your prayer life and mine is a measure of your confidence in yourself in the battle to handle your own problems, trials, and temptations. That's what Jesus is saying. Your prayer life is a measure of your self-sufficiency. Much prayer, little self-sufficiency. Little prayer, much self-sufficiency and overconfidence. Not only is it a measure of self-sufficiency, it's a predictor of failure. It's a, your prayer life is a predictor of success or failure. Much prayer, the, pr the prediction is you'll probably make it. Little prayer, you won't make it. You see that? It's a predictor. Did they pray? So did the disciples pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? They slept. That's what they did. Did they withstand the trial and temptation that came to them just hours later? No, they didn't. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And how about Peter? Jesus had warned him that he would deny him three times, and he did just that. I want to contrast the disciples' self-sufficient confidence with how Jesus handled the coming trials and temptations. I said there's two storylines here. They're contrasting storylines. This is, this is how they handled it. This is how Jesus handled it. After the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples retreated to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He prayed like that because of the horror that lay ahead. 
He had told the disciples he would suffer, and he was now in great anguish. It says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The temptation that Jesus faced in the garden was not to go to the cross. He, did Jesus face temptation, and the answer is? Yes, huge temptation. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in the wilderness, but he was being tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is why he prayed, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. The temptation was fierce. Don't go through with this horror. Let's see how the Father handles it. Evidently, the Father said there was no other way. Instead, the Father's response was to strengthen Jesus for what lay ahead. Immediately in verse 43 it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and what? Strengthened him. But that's not the only time we see that kind of principle. We see it. We see it with the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. To keep me from becoming conceited because of his great and, and, and surpassing revelations, there was given to me a what? Thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Is that bad? A messenger from Satan to torment you, would, would that be a bad thing? It's pretty bad. It had to be bad because it doesn't say, and so he prayed. No, it doesn't say that. It says he, what? Three times he pleaded with the Lord to remove it from him, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, because he had already given him his reason. No, I can't take this away from you, Paul, because he's exceeding great and uh, surpassing revelations, you're going to become conceited and you'll lose your reward. And so, no, I, I can't take it away from you, but what I'll do is give you my grace to strengthen you so that you can do it. Which is why Paul says, power is made perfect in weakness. And you get that power in prayer. And Jesus received his strength in prayer and withstood the fiery test and trial that was coming his way. That's how he did it. Even though Peter was forewarned about the trial he would endure, he failed. Why? Because he neglected to do what Jesus said and what Jesus had modeled. Jesus said, I want to pray so you don't fall into temptation. And then Jesus modeled it for them. And he still failed. Now, I'm not, listen to me, I'm not being overly critical of Peter because one day I got to meet him. I don't want to slander him too bad. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we're no better than he is. That's the point. We, find, we see ourselves in Peter. And if he had done what Jesus had said, it would have steeled him, double E, for what lay ahead. Now, here's the issue. How many of life's trials did you know about the day before? Huh? Not too many of them. Jesus told Peter not only that he would face a trial the next day, but specifically what it was, and he still failed. So, how many of us would be able to face a fiery trial or temptation, and we all do, 
when we don't know it's coming and it blindsides us, and that's what normally happens. How much more do you and I need to be in prayer so that we get the strength for what's coming? Is that true? This isn't make-believe what we're talking about here. This is real life. So if Peter demonstrated that when he knew specifically that he wouldn't be, withstand it without prayer, then we don't have much of a chance when things surprise us. Let's take this a step further, however. Right now, we're just talking about overt temptations and trials. Now I'm going to take it to a whole new level. Though they may surprise us, they are nevertheless clearly seen. Denying Christ, is that a clear temptation? Yes or no? Oh, yeah. It's just in your face. It's in your face. You know it. You know it when you're doing it. But now I'm going to show you a trial and a temptation that comes to us many times, and we don't even know it. Take it out of the life of Peter. Sorry, Peter. Take it out of the life of Peter again. Peter's covert trial and temptation we're going to look at. Earlier, Jesus prepared his disciples by explaining what lay ahead, telling them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, be killed, and then rise on the third day. And I want you to notice Peter's response to this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. You know the story. We all know the story. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And I want you to notice Jesus' strong reaction to him. And again, you know what's coming. <laughs> you know this part of the story. Matthew 16, 23, the very next verse. But he turned and said to Peter, what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want you to notice something here. Jesus recognized that these thoughts had been planted in Peter by Satan, even though Peter didn't recognize it. Which is why Jesus directly said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus recognized them as thoughts planted by the enemy. Peter didn't. Perhaps that's the reason Jesus said it that way. And here's the question. Did Peter have a bad motive here? Was he bad-intentioned when he said that? No. Was he actually a good man? You know what? Peter, if Peter was in this church, he probably would be the pastor of this church. <laughs> and that's why I said it. But he would have been the pastor instead of me, too. And that's a point. In Peter's mind and rationale, it actually made a lot of sense to voice his objection to what Jesus said. And I think that Peter was speaking for all of them when he said it. It's just that he was a brash D and just spoke his mind while the others were agreeing silently. Huh? Because if you think about this objectively, don't you think he was pretty much on mark? 
I mean, yes, you know about the cross now and everything, but he was before the cross. Did that really make a lot of sense, what Jesus was saying? Uh, rationally, no. No, it didn't. In fact, Paul later says, writes in 1 Corinthians, he said, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to, to those who do not believe. Right? Peter had just been tempted and succumbed to the temptation and wasn't even aware of it. Why? Because it was a rational thought in his head. God doesn't want us to depend on our own intellect, our own acquired wisdom, our own talents, and our own experience, but on Him. There's a lot of things you will not understand about what the Spirit is up to unless you are in prayer. And you're going to come up with all kinds of rationalistic, intellectual ideas that did not come from Him, but from the enemy. If you don't spend much time in prayer, it's a non-negotiable. Paul understood it. He was one of the smartest people ever. Much smarter than most or all of anybody here at Southland, probably any of the churches represented here. And you know what he said? He said, indeed in our hearts, verse 9, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. We're supposed to rely on God. Look at Jesus' life. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. He modeled it for us. He said it, and he modeled it. He said, I tell you the truth, I, the Son does nothing by himself. He, he only does what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. If we go to verse 30, he said, by myself, I, uh, uh, I, do, I do nothing. I judge only as I hear. Chapter 5, verse 30. Where did this happen? In his prayer life. In his prayer life. Luke chapter 5, verse 16 says, Jesus often, how often? Withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, here's what I'm going to say. When churches become self-confident, you know what's the first thing they start doing? They quit praying. Do you know what self-sufficient confidence is called in five letters? Pride. It is the most insidious form of pride because you and I are completely unaware of it. I'm going to put something up on the screen. I want to show you something. Everybody in this church knows that boasting is prideful. How many of you know that? Knew that before I put that up? Okay, how many of you just found that out now when I put it up? See, no hands. Haha, you knew that. And so uh, what, what I hate about that is, as pastors, we have to hide that. So we can't go around saying, I did this by myself. So even if a pastor is proud... He go around and say the right things. But it's not just pastors. All of us. Is that true? The one thing we know is you don't boast. Is that true? Because, oop, they got you. Ah, shoot. Yeah, they got you. Because everybody knows that one. You know what we don't know? Is that prayerlessness says the exact same thing according to the lesson that we've been learning from Jesus in the Scriptures today. 
says the same thing. Boasting says, I did it by myself. Prayerlessness says, I can do this by myself. I got it. I got it. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I know what I'm doing as a student. I know what I'm doing as a parent. I know what I'm doing as a husband or a wife. I know what I'm doing as a minister or a cell leader. I know what. I, I got it. I've done this. I've been there. I got a lot of experience. I got a lot of training. I got it. Pastors do the exact same thing. I got it. That's what the disciples were doing. That's what pride is. No amount of natural abilities, gifts, training, intellect, expertise, and experience is sufficient. Jesus said, and I repeat, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that's going to last. Oh, yes, you can do some things. You can dress your kids. And you can get them off to school. Make, maybe even make them successful in the world. You can do that. But fruit only comes in connection to the vine through prayer. Take prayer off the table, and you knock that one off. The biggest danger that successful churches face, like Southland, and there's other successful churches represented here, and I know which churches they are. The biggest danger we face is this, that Satan changes his tactics from attacking us overtly and openly to attacking us covertly and subtly so that we begin to shift our faith into our own selves defective, deficient faith, and that we think that the thoughts we are having are all ours. And we don't depend on him anymore to sift those things out in prayer. And when we do it, we are already on the road to destruction. They began to think that they were clever enough to navigate themselves. The first sign is that prayer meetings and ministries are ushered to the sidelines of a church's activities. 1996, first thing the Holy Spirit said to me that I was supposed to institute and, and, and lead the church to do was a, was a prayer meeting. We called it Operation Prayer. It was dismal, and you know the story. But that was the first thing. Do you know what's the first thing he told me to do in 1997? This was when Fran then got sick and all, all kinds of things went off the rail. Of course they would, because, but 1997, start a prayer ministry. The first thing was a, was a prayer meeting, 1996. The second thing in 1997 was a prayer ministry. And if you want to know why Southland became successful in, in a short way, yes, there's lots of things you have to do after that. It's not just pray and do nothing. No, 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 no. But doing something without prayer, you get nowhere. And, they, and um, over the next 22 years, I would venture to say that I met, and by the way, I think we were one of the first, if not the first, and maybe still the only church in the country that hired a prayer person in 2004. But she had already been leading us 
uh, in prayer of the prayer ministry since 1999. She got involved in 98 already, right after pa- her husband passed away, Grace Fast. And during those 22 years, I would venture to say that I met with Grace Fast, who then trained 300 intercessors more in an intentional way. I'm not talking about just water cooler kind of conversations. More than any other single staff person. And the results are telling. God did an unbelievable thing. In 22 years, we grew every single year numerically and financially, never mind the spiritual transformation. That's boasting? You bet it is. I'm boasting in the Lord right now. And I'll do it till the day I die. I'm not boasting in myself. Prayer is never boasting about yourself. Boasting, prayer is always about boasting in Him. Prayerlessness is about boasting in ourselves. And now, for the last eight years, I've led church renewal. Do you know who Fran and I communicate with more than any other church staff member? Grace Fast. It's still Grace Fast. Why? Because we believe in the prayer meetings and we believe in prayer in our personal lives and we believe in prayer ministries. Without it, we are nothing. We are mincemeat. Luke 19.46 says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a what? Den of robbers. The Spirit of Jesus today is saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of meetings and programs. That's what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, mercifully for you, I only have one point left. Excuses for prayerlessness, and then we'll be done. First of all, I'm too busy. Jesus was visiting Mary and Martha in their home, Luke chapter 10, and Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, and while Martha was distracted and busy making preparations, finally Martha complained, asking Jesus to tell her sister, Mary, tell her to get in the kitchen here and help me. And Jesus responded, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. Listen to me. If you are too busy to pray, you are too busy. Something has to go. Do you know what? My life, you you think that just because I don't have kids, my life isn't busy? When you're leading growing ministries all the time, you're constantly taking on new stuff. And constantly, Fran and I have to go to prayer often together, and listen and ask the Holy Spirit to help us sift out what do we give away or what do we drop. That is part of the prayer life. You can't just add prayer to an overcrowded schedule. And pastors, if your church is too busy to pray, then your church is just too busy. Then you've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help you sift through what's got to go. It's time to slash and burn programs, but one thing you never slash is 
prayer in your personal life and in the life of the church. Never. That's the non-negotiable. Something has to go, and for that you have to listen to prayer. But that doesn't mean now that because you're going to reorder your life and you're going to put prayer in the right place and you're going to reorder things, you will never be tired. And that's excuse number two for prayerlessness. Never be tired? Are you kidding me? Why do you think the disciples fell asleep in Gethsemane? Huh? They were extremely tired. Luke chapter 22 says, When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. What? Exhausted. Not just tired. They were completely exhausted. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' response. Oh, disciples, I know how exhausted you are. Sleep on. Is that what he said? Let's read on. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. They're exhausted. And he's saying, fellas, and he grabs them by the collar, wake up. Jesus spent the night praying to God. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night praying to God. The next morning, he called his disciples to him, chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. I want to ask you a question. When he prayed all night, do you think Jesus ever got tired? Hello? Did he get hungry? Yes. Did he get thirsty? Yes. Did he get tired? Of course he did. But did he fudge on prayer? No, he never fudged on prayer. He might have fudged on other things, but he didn't move prayer out of its priority because that's how you connect to the vine. In fact, that's how you exist and make it through your trials. That's where you get the stamina. Do you know what's the num- one of the number one prayer items that Fran and I have for ourselves personally and our prayer teams have? Stamina. Four kinds. Physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. Do you know why? Because it's tough sledding. The schedules are very demanding. They're tiring and they're exhausting. So we connect to the vine. That's how we do it. And we ask others to pray for us. Prayer is critical for this. We can't fudge on that. You know, uh, Fran um, has been sharing a lot with me lately. She got a warning dream on this very topic just the other day. Just a very strong warning dream. And uh, the, the prayer ministry has been getting similar things. But one of the things she's been sharing with me over and over and over is a picture she keeps getting. And she shared it with me yesterday twice. And already this morning at the breakfast table, she brought it up again. And I'm starting to get the picture here. (laughs) You know what the picture is? It's a very simple one. The harvest. And when uh, when she was very small, she lived for a couple of years with her grandparents. And they had a big dairy farm. They had the fields, and the farmers would go, go out on the field when it was harvest time. And you know what they would do? They would harvest all night long. 
When, when it's time to bring in the harvest, what do you do? You work. That's what you do. We were coming back from Pinawa uh, when we were running the Set Free uh, retreat one night, uh, just for the Saturday night, because we had to do something, and then we're going right back to the retreat a few years ago. And as we were coming back, we happened to be coming. It was October, so that's when we were running our Set Free. That night, there were combines. We couldn't count how many combines. They were everywhere. And, and, and we were driving at midnight. They were combining. Prayer is part of loving people. Did you know that? It's part of the harvest, and it's time to harvest. Here, here's one for parents sometimes, too busy with children. Uh, I want to give you a different kind of model, not a modern-day one, but it's a good one. In the 1700s, there was a woman by the name of Susanna Wesley. She homeschooled and cared for 10 children. Nine passed away, not of those 10. And then she had 10 that survived. And she had a very, very, very difficult life, extremely difficult. And uh, she homeschooled them. And she didn't homeschool them <laughs> at the level we homeschool. No, 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 no. Way over here. She homeschooled them in the classics and languages, Latin, Greek, all of that kind of stuff. Two of the boys that she homeschooled, their names were John and Charles Wesley. You recognize that? Do you know what she did every day as she would give them work, their school assignments, and while they were playing, two hours a day, she would take her apron and she would lift it up and put it over her head. And then she would pray for two hours. That's what she did. And two of those boys, two little boys, went on not to only change and revive the Christian church in the West, it changed the world. In fact, Wilberforce wouldn't have been able to do what he did with slavery if it hadn't been for the Wesleys. Now, I'm not saying you should go buy an apron. What I am saying is, it's not an excuse. There just is no excuse. Be creative. Get alone with the Holy Spirit. If you, if you can't think of something, say, Lord, how am I going to do this? But somewhere, she said, prayer, no matter how busy I am, even with children, prayer is non-negotiable. And she made a difference. You say, well, for the prayer summit, you know, I've got little kids at home. So? How many parents does it take to take care of a couple of little kids? Huh? Uh, one. So, one takes care of the little kids, and the other one, what? Comes to pray. And the next month, you what? Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> our problem, our problem isn't that we can't pray. Our problem is we won't pray. And one last excuse. I have more, but it's too crowded. I've heard that one. You know, there's a story in the Bible of friends who had, they had there was four of them, they had a friend who needed to be healed, and what did they do? 
They picked him up on a mat, and they took him to Jesus. And when they got there, it was too crowded, and they couldn't get him in the door. So what did they do? They got on the roof. They cut a hole in the roof. <laughs> I don't know what the insurance companies would do about this, but it was, that's what they did. And they let him down. And now I want to ask you this question. Isn't it worth fighting a crowd at a prayer summit in order to bring your friend to the throne room in prayer? And the answer is, unequivocally, yes. You see, we don't recognize the enemy in our excuses. I'm, I'm going to share one, uh, one example from my mother-in-law. I'm watching the clock here. I'm still safe. My mother-in-law, I have a dear mother who prays a lot, serves a lot here too, just like many of our seniors here. But I also had a wonderful mother-in-law, Fran's mother, she loved the Lord, and they came and they joined on here at Southland as soon as we did. And they wanted to support us. So when I started Operation Prayer, she wanted to attend Operation Prayer. It was just across the street in the Lowen Funeral Chapel at the time, which is now the Hanover School Division offices. And um, do you know what happened every Saturday? Every Saturday, she intended to go to the prayer meeting the next morning, and every Saturday, she would get sick. And then she would be up all night, and then finally just drop off to sleep, just as the dawn was coming. And one day, she realized what was going on. It's the devil doing this. At least she suspected it. So you know what she did? She told us as much later. She told the devil one night, devil, it's Saturday, and tomorrow's prayer meeting, it's Operation Prayer, and I'm going to the prayer meeting. You can make me sick, and you can keep me up all night, but tomorrow, I'm going to the prayer meeting. The next morning, she went to the prayer meeting, and after that, she didn't get sick again on Saturdays. We don't recognize the enemy. There's a war. You know what? A, a, a community leader and a church leader in our church, he was serving yesterday, he was in the message. He came to me immediately after and he said, do you know what happens to my wife? My wife and I, he said, we've got a wonderful marriage. You know what happens at many of the, at the uh, just before many of the prayer summits? We have conflict between each other. And he said, we recognize who it is. It's the enemy stirring it up. Because that should tell us a lot about prayer. It must be effective if he wants to keep us from getting together to pray. Would you agree? So he said, we just determine we're going to go. And I think she prays on one end of the auditorium and he prays on the other end. <laughs> But he said, we've never missed a prayer summit because of conflict. And he said, you know what? Many times when we go home, we are so thankful and we hug each other and we're so glad we went to the prayer summit. So this is how I'm going to end. I'm going to have to give up one of my illustrations and I'll just say this. Church, Peter was restored and that's the good news. He failed because he was self-confident. He was so self-confident when he failed, he recognized his overconfidence and he thought he, was, he should be disqualified from ministry. He was so ashamed of himself, he ended up on a beach. He was going back to fishing. And do you know what the Lord did? Met him there. 
said, Simon, do you love me? Yeah. Yeah, I love you. Simon, you can see Jesus wanted to lift up his chin. Simon, do you love me? Yeah. Feed my lambs. You know what Jesus did? When Peter repented, Jesus Jesus restored him. And you and I can repent of our prayerlessness and our self-sufficiency, and then God restores us too. Amen? Is that what you were going to do? Yeah. Tonight's the prayer summit. And the Spirit of Christ asks us, can't you watch with me for two hours? Wake up and pray so you don't fall into temptation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.